Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode nine of Staying Alive with me, Jesse Smith, a podcast about creative people and how they weather the storm of life on the road. I hope you've all had a good week. I've actually managed to escape to Finland for a while, so I'm recording from here. And as I've travelled to the land of the ice and snow, things are really hotting up back home in the entertainment industry's plea to the government to give us some support. The message is simple. Let us do what we do best as soon as possible with a timetable or give us some help. Many feel our world-renowned arts industry, featuring some of the most talented people on the planet, is being hung out to dry. And the pictures circulating of people out on the town drinking with a total disregard for social distancing isn't helping artists to feel less frustrated as their livelihoods are ground to a halt. More news on that to follow, of course. Today's guest is one of the reasons I started this podcast in the first place. A couple of years ago, I was given the opportunity to go on a speaking tour as an interviewer, which was a brand new discipline for me. And it resulted in two tours on the road with one of the world's greatest guitarists. He is undoubtedly one of the best ever rock and roll sidemen, having played with David Bowie on and off for almost 40 years, and also on John Lennon's last two studio albums, Double Fantasy and the posthumous Milk and Honey. He's also written and recorded with the likes of Glenn Matlock, Robert Smith from The Cure, David Coverdale and Jim Diamond to name but a few. We've become really good mates over the last few years and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Today's guest is the one and only... Earl Slick. And you know what? It's it's funny, man, because you know I've I've done quite a few of these podcasts now, and I should be. This is the one I should be worried about and be nervous about, but we've we've done this kind of thing so many times. No, this is this is easy. <laughs> this is like hanging out in the car, you know. Exactly. That's exactly what I want this to be, one of our car chats where we put I, the world to rights. We have fixed the problems of the world <laughs> in that car. Oh, by the exactly. way, have you seen this yet? What's that, mate? Oh, it's your your new telly. Yep. Amazing. What pickups are they? That that that's the original pickup yeah. that's i replaced the other one here with a seymour duncan put in brass saddles gutted it and rewired it and i got like a you know a 1500 quid guitar now that i only paid 300 for amazing took the shit off the neck too the, yeah yeah some of that gloss where did you get that one from was it from the, the place in camden yeah i got it in there and they had like I just went in there and I started playing tellies and I, you know, played some of the American ones, all, all the different ones. And this was on the floor and I played it and I, and I went in the little booth and, and we brought an American one and we compared the two. Yeah. It was moot. This one actually played better. 
Yeah, and that's what I love about you as well. I remember you going into, was it Dundee or somewhere, and you just bought a little guitar for like 80 quid and you were suddenly oh, using it on the road. Yeah. <laughs> you know what it is, man? I mean, the neck's straight, it plays good, it's lightweight, so it resonates. The rest of it is wiring and pickups. And you know what? That cost me a total of like 200 quid yeah. on top of the 300. A new one of these tellies, Americans run between 1,500 and 2,000 quid. And mm. it's fucking great. Why how, much of it, how much of it is just fingers, do you think, guitar playing? That definitely factors in. But the, <laughs> my fingers couldn't make the, the $1,500 one uh, sound any better than the 300. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. They were the same, uh-huh. basically. So... Anyway, um, yeah, Matlock's lurking around somewhere too in here, maybe. So we'll see. Oh, cool. Well, he's next. He's he's the he's next on my list. Oh, when, cool. When, All right. when we're done this. <laughs> Good. So, uh, should we should we start off by just talking about how we met and the Slicky Speaks shows? Because it's it's quite cool, man. Obviously, uh, we met a couple of years back, and um, and I, I basically it was my first foray into this type of thing, really, wasn't it? This kind of interviewing random yeah. stuff, you know. And um, why, don't, why don't you explain what Slicky Speaks was and and what it is, and if you got any plans to do any more of it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, the Slicky Speaks thing. Well, you know, it was like um, I had done about at least ten years ago. I had done some things for an organization called the School of Rock in the States, which was started by a guy named Paul Green. And in their programs, they had like master classes and seminars and stuff like that. And it's something I'd never done before. And when I was doing the master classes, as it turns out, these these schools are, are, are geared towards kids between low end, about 10 years old, up to maybe 18 years of age, with the average probably being between 12 and 18. That's the bulk of the kids. But their parents would come with them. And the age group that their parents would be in, they would be very well versed in in slicky matters. Mm. So they, uh, the kids would ask questions about the guitars and the, and the parents would ask questions about David Bowie. So, yeah. <laughs> and as it turns out, I found as, as I was doing these things that... Um, it was kind of fun because the parents would ask, they would, you know, some of them were the usual goofy questions, but there were a lot of legit things in there. And that kind of got me going on it. And then it was like, hmm, was it two? No, it wasn't even two years ago. It was like a, a year ago this past September. So that's, it was it, it was around that, September of 18. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I came over here. um, uh, to, to obviously in the states it was a little bit more difficult because uh, I really didn't know who to approach or how to do it. It was a lot more easy in the UK. And um, a friend of a mutual friend of ours, Tom Wilcox, had had put it together and booked a, uh, a lot of really good dates. I think we did what ten dates, maybe eight or ten dates. Yeah. And um, and then you know Tom uh, had done one with me, doing the you know he was sort of the the uh, the interviewer he was the uh, the Parkinson or the or the uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the the, uh, the Jonathan Wass <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, he did one like that and then uh, we needed to hit the road and hence Jesse Smith enters the picture so you were 
minder, tour manager, interviewer, and babysitter. And you did a great <laughs> job. Uh, thanks, man. Well, obviously, it, it was a lot of fun and, uh, you know, just trying to trying to keep you on a leash, uh, driving around the country, you know, it was a lot of fun. And, um, and it was a really, for me, especially, it was a really interesting thing because, you know, as you'll know, talking is very different to performing. And obviously I'm a singer. I'm, I'm in my comfort zone when I'm up there singing. So to be sat there, you know, thinking of questions to ask you in front of a live audience was a, as a, was a really kind of brand new, interesting skill for me. And it's probably what's led me to kind of doing this podcast actually a couple of years later on down the line as well, because I'm a lot more comfortable just having a chat with people now. So I've got you to thank for that. <laughs> well, you know, you did, you, you did it the right way. Well, I did just candy or something. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know what? You do have a natural ability for it. The main thing with this is if you're a singer or, or, or a performer, guitar player, whatever, you can do it all the time. It's mindless. You don't you don't get all wound up about doing a vocal track or or doing a gig. But this is new territory, and it's like, wow, am I going to sound dumb? I got to ask the right questions, you know. And then you overthink it, and then you think yourself into an anxiety attack. And the best way to approach it really is go into it and go, okay, I'm probably going to screw the first few up, and then I'll get on a roll. And that's kind of what happened. We both did because I was a bit floundering at the beginning too, because you've got to ask questions, but then I got to answer the goddamn things. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, man. And, and how have you been getting on in this, uh, this lockdown? Obviously you're, you're still in London right now and you're in a hotel for a lot of the time. So yeah. How it must've been tough and, uh, just sort of going stir crazy in a hotel. It's, you know, it's weird because you have days where you, you're all right. You know, you, you get up and, Obviously, I mean, this is the highlight of today. <laughs> oh, bless you, man. Skyping a podcast, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and then what do I do with the other 23 hours, you know? But um, it's it's a weird thing because now there have been times where, you know, you're in between tours. You've got a month off, maybe even two months between any big gigs. And you go about your business. You don't think about it because you have the option to jump in the car, go to the store, take a walk, uh, go see a band, whatever. Sure. So when you're off in this situation, it's been an imposed uh, hiatus as opposed to, okay, I just finished this tour. I've been on the road for three months. I'm going to take eight weeks off and then I'm going to go back out again, right? Well, now there is no going back out again in, in the foreseeable future. So the fact that you don't really have the options that you had before this virus set in is what makes it difficult mm. for me anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And and now you're at, you're at Glenn's, aren't you? Your buddy Glenn Matlock. So how are you, how are you two getting on? You know, uh, so far so good. I haven't been thrown out. <laughs> he hasn't tried to kill me. So uh, also the flat is big enough and there's a garden and then we're only – over the road, like a half a block, there's a, a a coffee place, which obviously all you can do is pick it up the curb. But, um, you know, you figure it out. Now, had had this been maybe when we were in the heyday of uh, our insanity, this could, this would have been an extremely ugly situation. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I, I panicked a little bit because uh, you sent me an emoji on Skype. Uh, the other day, I know you love your emojis, don't you? All these stupid pictures and stuff. That dance, the ones on Skype are cool. Yeah, 
Is there animated? But there was there was one um, the one you sent me the other day. It's it must be it must be somebody that's hungover and is making a really funny face and it's got bags under his eyes. And when I logged into Skype today, if instead of the emoji showing, it just said the word hungover. And I was <laughs> I was so, I was so confused. I was like, Slicky's been sober for thirty years. What's going on? And my heart was going. I was going, yeah. What's going on? It was so weird. I was like, Why is he telling me he's hungover? As as he as lockdown finally got to well, it. Trust me, if I was dumb enough to go out and do that, I would not admit to being hungover. So yeah. you would know. <laughs> I'm actually a little bit hungover today. I've been doing my online gigs and uh, kind of the nervousness of being sat in your own front room performing to people on the internet has made me end up having a few beers during them. So I'm actually a little bit tender today. Hey. <laughs> you could you could have my share. Yeah. <laughs> so do you mind if we go back to the beginning a little bit, mate? So firstly, um, like who were your heroes when you were a kid growing up? What music were you listening to and what made you pick up the guitar in the first place? You know, um, it's funny this, we've done, we've done enough of these, uh, uh, slicky speaks things where the answer changes sometimes. It's yeah. I've again. noticed. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, you know what it is too, because you're thinking back that far, you asked me that question and, um, my perspective on things changes because every time you think to go back that far and recall things you re you'll remember something different it's mm. you know you what we remember uh a lot of times is kind of as trump would call it fake news yeah <laughs> uh, we 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 do unconsciously rewrite what we remember Absolutely. um so today's answer to that question <laughs> When I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn, uh, my mother did listen to the radio and listen to country music. My grandmother used to, uh, in between soap operas, she'd listen to like, she listened to kind of the, the pop stations, you know, a lot of uh, you know, Johnny Mathis and, uh, um, you know, the Sinatra was on there and, uh, you know, and but they would play Bobby Darren on there a lot because he was huge back then. Bobby Darren was like, you know, she just loved Bobby Darren. So I would hear that stuff. My father listened to big bands because he was a big band World War II veteran era guy. So all of that, it's unconsciously, I never thought about it. It was just there. Mm -hmm. But um, the trigger to pick the guitar up was probably somewhere in my psyche, but it, it I didn't really see it until I saw the Beatles on TV on that Sullivan show and their first appearance in the States and all of that excitement and the girls screaming and the, and you know, I was like 12 ish at the time, maybe. So you're just coming into that point of your life where, where, you know, you're, you're not, you're kind of a boy, but you're almost a teenager. So you're moving on to that next level. So I see these guys in cool haircuts and cool clothes and the girls are screaming and they're playing guitars. I'm going, well, guitar, haircuts and clothes equals chicks. So, yeah. <laughs> and that's what started it. And then over, I think, a six month period after that, um, I don't really remember exactly when I got my first guitar. It would have been within six months of that. But once I picked the guitar up, I realized it was more to what I was thinking. I didn't realize it at the time in hindsight, 
that there was more to what I was thinking than, you know, the, the chicks and all the glitz and stuff. I actually did love to play. Mm. So, um, you know, obviously the Beatles being the first impact, but I quickly, because Ed Sullivan was like the uh, the host of the British invasion in the U.S. Yeah. He was bringing them over like crazy. The next man that he brought over that had a major impact was the Stones. And that's what really got me moving as wanting to be a guitar player. With the Beatles, it was, it was sure, it was cool. Yeah, I liked the records. I loved the girls screaming. But it didn't really trigger me to really want to play in the way that the Stones did. So that was mm. the first thing. And through the Stones, uh, Stones being a, a, of a different ilk than the rest of the of, of the, the, the Brit bands, because it was mostly Brit pop, mm. you know, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Billy J. Kramer, the Dave Clark Five, and you know, then the list goes on and on. Stones were were a much more rootsy, hardcore blues and rock and roll band, which sure. really was something that I gravitated towards. So I would, you know, I would investigate. Then there were other British bands that were, that were in that ilk, which would be like the Animals, the Yardbirds. Mm. Through the Stones, though, mainly, I, it, it turned me on to a lot of the of the the stuff that never got played on United States radio, which were the Stones' roots: Alan Wolf, Muddy Waters, all that stuff. Uh, Robert Johnson, Fred McDowell, Jimmy Reed, and I found that stuff within the first year, and that's what really that's what made me want to play. Mm. Well, you can hear it all over your playing, you know, it's, you know, you, you're such a genuine blues player. And I think, I think that's probably from the outside looking in, stood you in good stead in your career because you're so unashamedly that thing, aren't you? And, and people, if people want that sound on their record, they call, they call you. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's the most natural thing I do. And it's what I really love to do. You know, I went through, this is, you know, these careers are funny. It's from the outside looking in, it looks different from the, the inside looking out for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because in the course of doing this, um, I didn't go to school. I don't have an education, really. Uh, I never learned any sort of a trade or anything. I hardly had maybe a few throwaway jobs when I was a kid. So the you only know what? There's a brilliant one. I'd love you to tell the story of when you were saving up to buy an amp and you had a summer job. Oh, yeah. What were you doing? Well, see, that's what the jobs were really for. <laughs> the, the job served two purposes. First, it would shut my father up because you go, well, you got to learn how to go out and make a living. <laughs> All right. So I would go and get jobs and like, OK, take job A. I wanted a real guitar. Uh, my father had got me the Stan Electro sort of acoustic thing, which was good to learn on. But then I'm watching like, you know, Jeff Beck had this Telecaster. And I was going, wow. And I saw one in the store. I think it it cost a hundred and. I don't know, one hundred and forty dollars, mm -hmm. which you can't buy a case for a Telecaster now for one hundred and forty. <laughs> so I went in there, looked at it and then I went and got a job. Uh, that was the um, the cleaning up the construction site job over the summer. And as soon as I had exactly the 140 plus whatever the tax, what you, the VAT, right? Yeah. The exact amount, I quit. I was <laughs> and you had your guitar. <laughs> had my guitar. Then, then the next thing I needed an amp. So I got a job at, at, at some burger restaurant or something. 
the amp was maybe, I don't know, $100 or something like that at the time. So I calculated it down. Okay, let me see, $100, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I work for five and a half weeks, and then I quit, which I did. <laughs> so that was my that was my work history up until I started earning money with my guitar. Yeah, so when did you start making money by playing? I was making little bits of money by the time I was 16. Mm. So not, you know, 20 bucks here, 15 bucks there, whatever. By the time I was 17, though, uh, I was actually starting to make, for then, really good money. I was probably up to about 150 bucks a week, 100 to 150 a week, in 1968 dollars. Yeah, which for a young guy is a lot, isn't it? Just yeah. playing, playing shows. Yeah, uh, and then by the time I was 18 or 19, I was averaging... As much as three hundred, as little as maybe one seventy-five or two. So it was about two fifty a week, hmm. and that was by then. We're nineteen sixty-nine, nineteen seventy, like that. That's you know, I mean, but that's it. And I, I had gigs fifty-two weeks a year. Hmm. People who should actually play young guys, they paid them to do gigs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> imagine, imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> And it's not to say that when I started working in the pubs at the bar tab didn't take about half my wage. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah, of course. And and at what point did you become Earl Slick? Oh, uh, became Earl Slick mm, about 1970-ish. So where um, does the name come from? It comes from, uh, it was actually coined by... Uh, lead singer of my band at the time, a guy named Jack O'Neill, he used to also go by the name Bojack, which he got from a, 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 a basically a failed uh, prize fighter from like the 1920s. So right. anyway, he grew up in Florida and I grew up in Brooklyn and my accent um, from uh, growing up in a Brooklyn Italian neighborhood, we would, you know, according to the rules, mispronounce a lot of stuff. And um, when I would say, like, oil, I would say Earl or boil an egg, you would burl an egg. I don't know what that acts. It's it, everybody <laughs> talks like that. Uh, anyway, he thought that was funny. And oil, Earl, it was at the time there had been um, a few of these uh, tanker accidents with there was oil slicks on the. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> somehow that's how it led to it. So. Every night we, you know, you when you're doing, we used to do four to five nights a week at, at a club, and you'd start at nine, and you'd finish at four in the morning, and you would roughly were forty five minutes on, fifteen minutes off for the night, and you would play each place for what one week, then you'd move on to the next one. And there was enough of them where you could keep doing that. After a while, as much fun as you were having, you get bored. You know, some nights like midweek nights like like thursdays were dead and by midnight the place was kind of empty but we still had to play for four more hours so we would just do silly stuff so he would introduce the band he would just come up with the weirdest names for us and we'd have a laugh and the oil slick thing which turned into earl slick eventually stuck you know um and the first time it appeared on a record was a band called Tracks out of New York that had a real record contract. They were they were on a subsidiary of Capital, 
And when they asked me how I wanted my credit, I never did a record before. I didn't know. I just said, put, put Earl Slick. And that was that. And that was it. I did credit my real name once on a record. Okay. But I did it in... I had a band with um, Slim Jim Phantom and Lee Rocker. Yeah. Uh, former Stray Cats called Phantom Rocker and Slick. We actually... We, 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 we did pretty good. It was a fun band. Uh, on our first record... Because everybody would do... That was the day of the special thanks. Right. It, the list of special thanks would be insane because <laughs> I, I, I thank this guy, but now I got to thank that guy because he's going to get pissed off. And, and the list <laughs> would be my dog, my cat, you know, some guy I grew up with I haven't seen in 15 years. So we just said, the hell with that. We thanked ourselves. So we did the only thanks <laughs> on that record are the three of our real names. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> we special thanks to James McDonald, Leon Drucker, and Earl and Frank Mataloni. That's how the special thanks are. <laughs> I wonder how many people knew that was actually you guys. <laughs> they didn't know it at the time because they, they couldn't look it up. They couldn't Google it. Yeah. They Google it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was kind of a fun inside joke. Yeah, that's funny, man. I was gonna I was gonna say to you obviously this podcast is called staying alive and like we were talking about before like me me driving you and doing these slicky speak shows and a really interesting story that you told me was how you kind of got involved with michael Kamen. i know he's a mentor to you but you actually it kind of led on to the bowie gig eventually but you were you were actually roadieing for him weren't you at the time yeah um it's a funny thing is that um you know, there really is no definitive way to put together a career in this business. There really isn't. You know, people will ask me, look, when we were doing this, the, the Slicky Speaks thing, yeah. what advice would you give a young guy on what he needs to do to have a career? And there really isn't any definitive, uh, you know, answer to that question. Um, Just throw so some stuff and eventually some of it will stick, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I had a few different bands and, you know, uh, at the time when I met Michael Kamen, I, there was a guy in my neighborhood uh, named Hank DeVito who was kind of a trip. Rest of us would, were, were like, you know, uh, motorcycle jackets and ripped up jeans and, and, and Converse sneakers. That's, you know, uh, pre-Ramones. That's why every kid in New York rockers all dressed like that, you know, mm. and. Hank wore Stetson hats and, and, and Justin cowboy boots and big holes <laughs> on his belt with a horse on it. And he played pedal steel guitar. Go figure. But he was working with Michael Kamen, who, uh, for anybody, it, Michael um, was a very well-known, later in life, he was a very well-known composer for uh, film. Um, he's mm -hmm. done a lot of number one movies and stuff as a composer. But early days, he had graduated from uh, Juilliard School of Music in New York and put together a rock band that had a little bit of a classical flavor to it and had some success. And I met Michael through my friend Hank DeVito, and um, we got on pretty good. And Michael saw, obviously, he saw something in me, some talent, and he really would help me out. And at one point, I got really, I got this epiphany I was in a band that was was really catering to really schmaltzy top 40 stuff to earn a living because the clubs would pay more money for that. 
and so I was doing that, and I was in really short order. I was going, "What the fuck am I doing?" You know. Uh, and I spoke to Hank about if Michael would needs a guitar player. Um, to which Michael responded, "No, but I need a I need a roadie." And I took the gig, mm. and that led me to be, you know, meet, you know, obviously meeting the guys in the band, some of which were part of Paul Butterfield's band. Mm-hmm. Um, David Sanborn was the sax player. Wow. And we all hit it off. And at one point, Michael stuck me in the band playing guitar. And mm. that was that was that was the bigger break than Bowie, because Bowie wouldn't have happened if that didn't happen. That was. Mm. the. So what's the link there was? How did you end up working with Bowie through that connection? Um, through the connection was is that Michael at the time was already. Uh, this is early 1973, 74. Michael had already ventured into composing. Not for film yet, but he was composing for Broadway. Mm. And he had composed music for the Joffrey Ballet, and Bowie was there, and uh, they had met backstage, at which point um, David uh, mentioned that his guitarist, McRonson, had left the band that he needed a new guy, and he gave him the parameters of that, and Michael suggested me. So through Michael, I got an audition. Mm. And were you a Bowie fan at the time? No. <laughs> I mean, I saw him on the TV shows. I had one Bowie album. Uh, I had Aladdin Sane because some of the guitars, like, oh, I know what it was. It was Panic in Detroit, which is a complete Bo Diddley rip. Mm. And between the beat and, and Ronson's guitars on that, I bought the album just for that track. Mm. You know, and then Gene Genie was on there, which now you're talking about Manish Boy. So it had some old blues uh, skeletons, even though the songs were not remotely blues, but the, the skeletons were. And that was the only record I had. I mean, mm. so the rest of it, I was in the dark. So maybe you were more of a Mick Watson fan than a David fan at the time. I really was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously, we, we, we've got a mutual friend as well, Lisa Ronson, who's obviously Mick's daughter. And... He was he was such an incredible guitar player, wasn't he? I, I know we did we did we did that gig up in Hull as well, didn't we, on the Slicky Speaks tour? And I know yeah. you you can't speak highly enough of mixed playing. And was it big shoes to fill when you did eventually get the gig? Well, yeah, because you know, unlike now, I mean, uh, there was um, there was definitely heroes back then. Like when I would look at Jeff Beck or. You know, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, Keith Richards, uh, all of those guys, they were untouchable to me. And that's what made it cool, Mm. you know. Uh, And then when uh, I got the Bowie record and then Mick became like, wow, this guy's really good, man. He really is. And uh, so when I had to fill his shoes later... I'm thinking, Jesus, he was in the band for a long time. Uh, he definitely got a cool image. He's a great guitar player. They're going to kill me. I'm going to get on the stage and they're going to hate me. And I just got, I got kind of lucky, I guess. Um, you know, and I think why I got lucky was when uh, when I did finally, when I did get the gig and we started getting ready for rehearsals, my biggest uh, anxiety was how the hell am I going to be Mick Ronson? I can't. I, I we we have a similar style in certain ways, 
but I've never been good at copying anything verbatim. I can I can emulate. I can say, okay, I can sound a little bit like this guy or that guy, but I can't note for note. I'm, I'm lousy at it. And uh, that was my biggest thing. And I went to Bowie and I said, what are we going to do about that? He says, look, I hire you because I like the way you play. So just, you know, do your take on the songs. Mm. And I think that's probably why the fans in the press didn't kill me was because I wasn't trying to replace Mick. I was I was a new guy with a new style. Yeah, you were, you were just being you and doing your own yeah. thing. And yeah, the yeah, yeah. The mistake you can make, I think, in a situation like that is trying to be the guy you replace. They're going to hate you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the audition then. How did, how did you, uh, when you first met David, what was the audition process like? It was bizarre. Uh, I hadn't really done auditions up to that point per se, but my take on a, on an audition was it you know joe blow calls you up says hey we want you to audition you show up at a rehearsal place there's a band uh they give you a list of songs you run through the songs and they say we'll call you whenever you know done but that wasn't the case here i showed up at rca studios in new york um and i i wasn't really putting it together right away that this wasn't a rehearsal place it was you know i knew i knew what rca studios was it's a recording studio and I showed up and there was no band. There wasn't rehearsal gear set up. It was, it was, um, I was met by David's assistant who brought me into the main recording room and looking through the glass at the control room was completely blacked out. And um, a voice got on the intercom and said, put your headphones on, which I did. There was an amp that, a Marshall amp that I requested from the, the day before when he said the, the uh, audition up. They said, "What do you?" I said, "Just get me a Marshall, or whatever." And he said, "Yeah, put your um, headphones on." He says, "Plug in, and we're going to play some tracks." I said, "What are they? What keys?" He said, Don't worry about it. Just play along. What I was playing along to, unbeknownst to me at the time, they were in the process of mixing Diamond Dogs. Right. So I was actually playing <laughs> along to the open tracks in there. Wow. I always wondered if they stole any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it might be hidden in the mix, Slicky. <laughs> 3D. Yeah. Wow. So that that's a mad audition, isn't it? Just sat there by yourself. That must have been terrifying. Were you, were you, were you scared? No. no, it wasn't. Uh, I was more like my mind just was just kept going, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, this is weird. <laughs> strange. Uh, and... Um, I think I had an edge to be able to have that mindset because a few years earlier, I'd spent about six months on the road working with the cast of hair from Broadway, mm. and they were wacky. So yeah. this, <laughs> if I was going to have it be shocked very easily, I'd already was over it. So um, not to say that it wasn't weird because it was. Um, and then after about 20 minutes, uh, Bowie walked in the room I was in and um we just sat and talked. There was a couple of guitars there. And he said, well, my assistant will let you know what's going on. That was it. Mm. What was your first impression of David when you first met him? Weirder than shit because, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I uh, my circle of people in New York City were, you know, rock and roll and blues players and stuff. You know, we were grungy street urchins. Like I said, you know, it, it was like a precursor to Ramon's wardrobe. Mm. he's in old sneakers and you know beat up leather and um and he walked in and it was a very, it was an odd sight um 
I mean, I'm not a big guy, but man, he was skinny, skinny dude. And uh, when he first walked in, I mean, because I'd seen some pictures, obviously, on the records and stuff. But when you see a guy walk in like that, he had at the time he was doing his no eyebrows thing. <laughs> so between the way he was dressed and the way he carried himself and no eyebrows, it was a bit of a sight. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. But you obviously you obviously got on well enough and yeah and you know what I mean somehow we we managed to hit it off pretty early because he I wouldn't have been kept around at all if we didn't sure and then you end up on the Diamond Dogs tour so to, speaking of uh, funny clothing you end up wearing a pretty oh. horrendous suit by all accounts yeah <laughs> oh you know the audition. As weird as that was, didn't hold the candle to the weird that came later because once, you know, we, we did all the, um, yeah, you have the gig and you got to talk to business with the office and all that. Um, so, yeah, you uh, come up to the, he, he used to keep a room at the Sherry Netherlands Hotel, which is a very beautiful old classic uh, uh, hotel right in Central Park uh, mm. across from the Plaza Hotel. It's, it's So I went up there and big suite with a white grand piano in it and, and all that stuff. And uh, he said, yeah, come up. I, I, you need to meet the wardrobe people and whatever. And, and, and the, uh, the haircut guy. And my hair was very long. And I remember before I came, he said, you get, you get your haircut. So I cut like a quarter inch off my hair. <laughs> well, I got there and I didn't realize that this was a concept show, hmm. you know, with, uh, anybody familiar with the Diamond Dog story had a set that was built to uh, represent a, a post-apocalyptic world with big, you know, oddly shaped, destroyed buildings in the background and all this other stuff. So part of it was we he had made he had drawings of clothes, of wardrobe. And mine was uh, a 1940s cut gray plaid suit with mm -hmm. normal Joe shoes and a very short haircut, like, I'm, you know, like maybe a half inch, like borderline crew cut. Mm. And the first thing that they did was to cut the hair and then measure me for the clothes. And by the time that was all done, I looked at myself and I went, holy shit, this is rock and roll. Uh -uh. <laughs> it's really funny to picture you in those clothes now, man. And you've still got the suit, right? I do. Yeah. Get on eBay, man. Oh, that's got to go. <laughs> the last remaining piece of the Diamond Dogs tour. That is it. It's tucked very safely in New York at the moment. <laughs> yeah, man. And then obviously you end up working with David in the studio as well on Young Americans and then later on Station to Station. And I want to talk about Station mainly just because that, that's kind of... That's your kind of opus with with David, I think. Really, it's it's got you all over that record, and is is that the one you're most proud of? And and how was how was that recording process working with David around that time? <clears throat> you know, uh, in hindsight, you could look at the recording process as really weird or not. You know, it's all it's down to perspective. Um, at the time, I think we worked on that record for almost two months, which. In 1975 was a really long amount. I mean, people, you know, were making records in three days or a week. Mm 
Mm. That was the period of time where people started to spend way more time in the studio. Um, so we were able to do some experimenting. And the basic tracks all cut live with the band. And it wasn't a lot of people in there. It was myself, Carlos Alomar on guitar, um, uh, George Murray on bass, and Dennis Davis on drums, and David. That was it. Mm. Who else was in there? Um, and um, so th the songs were put together as we went along. He had a framework for it. And we would just work it out uh as a band that was writing stuff in the studio. And I think that's why the record turned out the way it did, because he he was picking everybody's brain. Mm. He brought a piece of music in. It was like, how is my band going to approach this? As opposed to, okay, Dennis played this beat, George played this bass part, and so on and so forth. It wasn't like that. So much more of a band environment. Yeah. I mean, when he brought, we actually, it's the only record we ever did where we rehearsed, we only rehearsed for like maybe three days. But he just took a half a dozen of these shells that he had at rehearsal. And we, the main thing was is just to get a feel, mm. you know, a good basic feel. And that's what we brought in. So that's all we really had when we went in the studio was that, okay, wow, that we worked out the feel like a band does with anything. Mm. Was it, that, it was like a band. Yeah. I mean, it, you can hear that. It really doesn't feel like a, a singer songwriter album, does it at all? Oh, you know, it's not at all. No. And you, you told me uh, once about the uh, the beginning, the feedback, and I just thought that was brilliant because obviously I know you guys back in the back in the seventies were probably partial to the odd drink and the odd drug taking, and and uh, you told me that you and David were just up for days recording feedback with these huge Marshall lamps at, to the to the woe of the poor engineer. <laughs> you know, it's I can't even like distinctly remember how or who came up with the idea to get a hold of the rental company at some god-awful hour and have them deliver <laughs> bunches of Marshall stacks and me and David standing in front of these things, feeding back, and Harry Maslin, oh, my God, that poor guy, uh, <laughs> it did no rest. And um, I don't know how long we did it for. I, all I know is I just remember we were doing it for a while, standing in front of these marshals, feeding back and Harry recording a bunch of them. Amazing. <laughs> I know. Afterthought thing, the track was already cut. It was when we were doing overdubs towards the end, you know. Mm. That wasn't ever discussed. It just sort of, you do enough cocaine, you come up with a couple of cool ideas. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that one to other people, I think, to decide. Um, I did it for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, like like I mentioned already that, you know, this podcast is supposed to be about about how we get through the, the rough and, uh, you know, when when things aren't necessarily going so well. And I want to talk, if, if we can, about your first split from David. And you famously didn't really quit and didn't get fired. You just didn't show up. So what happened there and what, why well, did, what did you do that? it was a very odd situation. Let's start off with the fact that we were all taking a lot of drugs and, and, and not really focusing outside of, you know, uh, either the music or just being high all the time and, um, you know, making the record. And, um, you know, back then, I'm sure it's the same now to a degree. A lot of these managers and stuff, you know, they were up to no good, you know, not all of them, but, you know, with us all being compromised a lot, 
we were easy pickings for guys to pull, you know, fast ones, mm. making some money disappear, you know, uh, and some some things had gone down between David and and his manager, who was managing me, and they split, but I didn't. So right. I stayed with the management, which caused a lot of problems. And um, long story short, when we were getting ready for the rehearsals, which were going to be, I think, in Jamaica, in Kingston, Jamaica, uh, I tried to get a hold of David's new representative, which I did to work out my details for the tour. And uh, we weren't really, the negotiations weren't going well. And I said, look, at this point, I need to speak directly with David, you know, and he just blocked it. He wouldn't, wouldn't let me. So I never heard from David. Uh, I couldn't really get the deal solidified. So I just didn't show up at rehearsals. Wow. It's a um, bit of a bizarre industry when the lead guitar player can't talk to the, the singer. <laughs> you know, that's bullshit. You know, and that guy, that guy ended up eventually going to jail where he belonged for embezzlement <laughs> wow. because he stole David's money too. Right. Um, but you know, we we got caught in the middle of it, and I'm, I'm not like crying in my soup about it because it was our own fault because we were so high all the time. These guys were having a field day. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. With our careers and our money. Yeah. And at that point, what what did you what did you do during that period when you went just so, so you're suddenly, you know, you, you, you're on such a high doing all these massive gigs and working with David in the studio. You've got a massive name for yourself. And then what happens after that? Well, at that point, I'd already signed with Capitol Records. Mm. Um, so uh, at which I was putting that on hold. While I was would have been doing the station tour and then so and you know, I didn't have to put it on hold now because I wasn't doing the tour. Mm. I flew from the back from uh, New York to Los Angeles and just started putting the record together. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I think I'd actually I would actually already started the record and I was going to put it on hold, but I went and finished it. Some of it in New York, some of it in L.A. And because um, in my mind, you know, you got a 23 year old guy with that kind of a reputation and notoriety and, and add some cocaine to that, and you really have a recipe for a really delusional guy. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm going to show them all, man. My band's going to be number one. And that didn't work out like that, but uh, but that's mm -hmm. what I did. I, I focused on myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably a good thing to do at the time anyway. And then, and then um, I always think it's a beautiful symmetry with you because you talk about the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show being this, this kind of wow moment for you when you were 12. And then... Then you end up working with John Lennon. So how did uh, how did that come about? It's another one of these, you know, uh, just whereas in Bowie, getting the gig there was a bit of a fluke. I mean, what were the chances of that? Uh, with Lennon, it was, um, he had taken five years off from 1975 to 1980 to raise his son, Sean. And in 1980, he decided he was going to start, you know, making records and, you know, going back to work. Mm. And um, Jack Douglas was the producer, co-producer of the record, and Jack had worked with David before. And so it was Jack's uh, job. I mean, David had uh, David. John had, a, a, you know, a, an idea who he wanted to play on the record. And, and it was Jack's job to find everybody and organize it. And, I, and my name came up at John's request because uh, of us both, uh, you know, being on the Young Americans record, because John wrote fame with David. We also recorded uh, his song, Across the Universe, on that record. Mm. 
And so his memory was of me being in the studio doing these, you know, fame in that one. And, and so he requested me. And that's how I got the job. Amazing. <laughs> Next <That's>, question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, so you turn up into the, to the studio. What was it like meeting John again? It was really weird because it wasn't like meeting him again because I had absolutely no recollection of meeting him the first time because I was so fucking high that <laughs> I actually missed it. So he remembered. Wow. So we had a bit of a, we had a chat on that. And in his mind, we had met and worked together for it. In my mind, we didn't. And it was kind of a running joke through the course of the album. <laughs> I mean, how do you get that one? That's good. Didn't remember meeting a Beatle. That's amazing. <laughs> Whatsoever. <laughs> and how was, how was that recording process? That seemed like a real kind of family vibe around that time, was it? It was. Um, even though uh, the guys in there, for the most part, were, were the best session players in New York. You know, Tony Levin on bass and Huey McCracken. God, one of the most proficient, amazing uh, guitarists. Mm. Uh, you know, everybody, Andy Newmark on drums. Uh, and uh, I was, uh, I couldn't read. And specifically, that was one of the things why John wanted me there. Because, I, you know, I was more from his school of just straight up 50s and 60s rock and roll. Sure. Uh, so, but it was a family atmosphere. It was really cool. Um, even though the, we weren't like, recording it in chunks or you know all the rhythm section comes in on tuesday and then you could overdub on no we those are all live including mm. the vocals a lot of the vocals on the final records all of the vocals on milk and honey were the ones that were recorded they were live mm. and some of the ones on double fantasy as well so yeah it was recorded like a band like a family and it was a gas yeah it, it, it's just they're such brilliant records and um like you said, it was lucky that John tracked his vocals live because obviously we all know what happened. Yep. Um, so I don't don't want to talk too much about that, but obviously, what what's it like to be working with somebody that famous and then them then to not be around anymore? Well, these kind of things are kind of strange because uh, a sudden death doesn't sit well with anyone, especially somebody's family, you know. Uh, and if you're close to that person, um, now think about this too. The family has to deal with their own personal grief that they need to do, mm. but they can't really escape that because the news has it, the press has it, and they will milk that shit till the cows come home. Yeah, and yeah. I understand it. You know, John was who he was, and his uh, demise really shook a lot of people, millions of people. Mm. So from that point of view, it happened. It it was awful. Uh, to compound that over time, though, it really took a well. Look, we're talking about it now, forty years later. Yeah, yeah. And how no, about no, how how about Yoko? I know you guys are still great friends, right? Yeah. Um. You know, Yoko, like anything else with the press, uh, somebody had. Somebody had to be the bad guy when the Beatles broke up. And her being Japanese and a woman, bingo, we got mm. it. So the press ran with it, you know. And um, it was just, it, it was bullshit, you know. It really was. Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, as, she, as thick-skinned as she is, you could hear some of that stuff just so much before it starts to get to you. <clears throat> but she still went about her business, and she's a, she's a tough cookie. Mm. So, 
And I want to talk about as well, we, we, we called it when we were doing the Slicky Speak shows, we called it your uh, kind of anti-midlife crisis because a lot of guys get to a certain age and they, they buy a sports car or buy a guitar and try and join a band. But you already probably had all that stuff. So you decided to, uh, to pack it all in and sell all your gear and give up music. I did that 20 years ago. <clears throat> um, wow, more than 20 years ago. Uh, it was 1994, and uh, I'd hit a rough spot that just wouldn't go away. Mm. Everything I did, I would get excited about it, and then somehow it would just fall apart. And it ended up, uh, you know, financially messed up. It was just, you know, it happens. That's what, you know, you look at um, anybody's career. It's been, you know, a long-term career. Very few has been one just smooth shot straight up. Doesn't yeah. work. So it was a rough spot, but it was a rough spot that happened um, about six years after I cleaned up. I'm not going to get into a whole dissertation about sobriety right now. It's because it's it's moot. But mm. having said that. Normally, under those circumstances, I would just get high and move on. But I didn't have that option anymore. I didn't want to go there. So I said, fuck it. I'm out. I think I've accomplished some really good stuff. I really loved it. And now maybe it's time to move along. So, uh, But the ego was still there. So I wasn't going to stay in Los Angeles and get a, you know, some day job where people might recognize, you know, hey, that's the guy that used to play with this guy and that guy. So... Um, I went up to Lake Tahoe, Nevada, uh, and got a job selling a form of real estate for about three and a half years. Wow. Uh, we we get it, it? No, I sucked. Um, <laughs> it, the product sucked. The good thing was, though, I made just enough money to uh, support myself to live in one really great place. I loved it up there. Mm. Um and I swore I wasn't coming back. I mean, I was anonymous. I disappeared off the face of the earth, and I liked it like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, at the end of 99, I, I actually done some – I was sort of uh, dabbling a little bit because I had done a – wrote and recorded an album with uh, David Coverdale. Yeah, yeah. And uh, through 98 and 99 up there. Uh, and um, – I love that record, man. We've we've listened to it a few times yeah. in the car, and good record. Um, yeah, yeah. At, at the end of that, uh, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and that's when Bowie tracked me down, and then we started the whole thing over again at the end of '99 until the end. Mm. And how was it different the second time round? Obviously, you said you both cleaned up by that point. How was yeah, the working it- relationship different? The working relationship really wasn't a lot different. It was the personal relationship was was different. Right. Uh, You know, um, obviously, because we weren't like all, you know, gacked out all day. (laughs) (laughs) Making zero sense, you know. Yeah. Uh, No, everything was pretty much the same. Coming back, though, after I've taken a break, because, you know, at the time that I, I decided to leave, there was a lot of poor me. Why is this guy's career good? Mine's falling apart, poor me, poor me, right? Uh, coming back in, I realized that, wow, that shit happens. Doesn't mean it's fun, but it happens. So I had a whole new, and still do, uh, outlook 
And I'm back to this excitement I had as a kid when I play. I mean, um, I like the way I'm playing now better than I liked the way I was playing six months ago or a year ago or last week. Mm. That's a good sign. That was going to be my next question because you, you know, you're, you're sat talking to me and up until, I don't know if you still have, but up until about 10 seconds ago, you had your guitar in your hand and you've, you're always fiddling around, well, aren't you? You just, you know, you just... It, it, yeah, it, it's just, you know, it is what it is. And there was a point when I left, I wasn't even doing that anymore. I just think I, I, maybe that, that was my midlife crisis right there. Mm. I burned yeah, out. Yeah. Like as you said, instead of getting the Corvette and, and a, and a, and a 18 year old girlfriend, I went and sold shit ass timeshare for four years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how, how do you, how do you look at the industry kind of as a whole now? I know you said that you don't really, you wouldn't know kind of what advice to give the musicians of today, but how, how do you look at the industry and, how do you see yourself in that? And how has it changed for you as an artist? Because obviously okay. pre coronavirus. Oh yeah. <laughs> Let's go to pre-corona. Um, the business always has changed and it and, and and it changes according to a number of things. One of them is just uh as time goes on, uh social ideas and needs change because each new generation has their idea of, of, of things. And technology's got a huge play on that. Mm. You know, originally, let's let's take popular music. Let's, we're not going to go back to the little Edison discs that used to, the yeah, little yeah. discs. But, you know, 78 RPM records made out of clay. The big bands. Now, the big bands, is as huge as that is today, you know, it's, it's unforgettable. It only lasted five years. It was done. Mm. I mean, rock and roll is still kind of alive in a way. 60 years down the line. Uh, it survived the 78s to the 45 RPM to the, the 33 and a third LP to the eight track to, you know, uh, to the multi-track recording to, to the, you know, the surround sound and so on and so forth. And then it survived going from uh, analog recording to digital recording. But, it did change it. It survived, but it changed things drastically. So it not only changed, hey, this is easier in its own way to just, you know, I got infinite tracks on Pro Tools. Mm. Uh, which to me, for a rock and roll bed of a record, that's a distraction if you if you don't use it properly. Sure. It's a tool. It's not an instrument in my mind. That's the difference now is that a lot of the artists are using it as the instrument. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody that that that, that plays or records knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I guess the technology kind of informs the music as well. Like so much of that early 80s synth stuff, like that, like you're saying, that there would be tracks of trumpets and things that were played on a keyboard. It would be a sample of a trumpet right. on the yeah. record. And, and you had all these kind of weird kind of digital sounding albums. And uh, yeah. it, 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 it's, it's always a push and pull between the technology and the, the music, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 And, and then you also had a lot, a lot of out of work sax players and horn players. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For you sure. know, I mean, um, and you're right. I think that over the last 15 years, the, the technology is dictating the music mm. instead of the other way around. Instead of the technology being a tool to record the music, uh, people are creating the music through the technology by using all kinds of, of programs and loops and sounds and things that, you know, uh, and you really can't 
you know, you can't verify that, even though we all do it at points going, Jesus, those guys need to learn how to play for real, you know? Mm. Um, but it's what they know. Just yeah, like yeah. When I started, what did I know? I know I'm watching Keith Richards. Oh, Keith Richards likes Chuck Berry. Shit, I'll learn some. I'll learn some <laughs> Chuck Berry. I'll, you know, oh, I like Bo Diddley. And so I was influenced by that, just like these guys are influenced. Well, their Bo Diddley is this new program. <laughs> mm. Oh wow! I, I guess for I guess for guys like you and and you know I guess me to a lesser extent, you know, I love that feeling of being in a rehearsal room and creating something and and you know the the human element of music, you know, which which you can't recreate by sitting at home oh. by yourself on a computer, you know, and learning to play and also learning how to be part of an ensemble and learning to, like you've told me many times, learning to know when to shut the fuck up is, is a real skill, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Get your hands off that guitar. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you don't play during this part, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. You get a bunch of guys in a room with an idea, a song, a piece of a song. You play through it. That interaction on that piece of music at that time is only ever going to happen once. Mm. We won't be able to do that again an hour later. Not yeah. that it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a freeze frame of, of, of an event that you can't. Oh, sure. You could do the same thing an hour later. Sure. You can play all the same notes and everything ain't going to be the same outcome. Is it? No, not all the way. And that's the thing that that's the beauty of the interaction. Whereas if you have a program and you program the thing and you hit that button, it's going to be do exactly what it's going to do every time. Exactly. Yeah. And That's that, that, kind of the fun out of it for me, you know. Uh, I'm not really big on consistency in that stuff. Mm. Me too, man. And that's what I love about, you know, your playing in particular. You know, I love watching you play, of, of course, and I've been lucky enough to do so over these last couple of years. And just the way that it's just pure expression. And like you say, it's never the same every time. It's always slightly different and it's all about feel. And, and you know, that's what I think that's what makes you brilliant. And that's why uh, you're so respected around the world as a guitar player, man. You know, the way, you know, I don't think uh, for a good part of my life, I really put much thought into what I do or how I do it. As time's gone on, though, I have thought about it. And what it is, is this is how I express myself. And in the course of any any day, today's what again? Saturday. Okay. Saturday. <laughs> um, now with this Corona and us all being locked up, in essence, today's not going to be a whole lot different than yesterday. This is Groundhog Day personified. This shit. Yeah. But as much as that, I, having said that, yeah, it's a little different today. I felt a hair different when I got up. I'm going to feel different feelings and ideas as the day goes on. So it's not the same. And that's what the whole beauty of, of the music would be, is that different mindset at different times can give you such different results. Yeah, absolutely. You, don't, you know what I mean? It, you, don't, um, you don't think about much of it. And that's what the playing is, The you know, uh, well, you've seen me from day to day when we when we were out on the road where I'd be noodling on my guitar and, and on different days would be completely different stuff coming out of my hands. Mm. None of which I didn't sit down and plan any of that. Just, oh, I pick my guitar. What happens next? Mm. And for, for young guitarists out there as well, like you, you told me that you never really 
practice per se. You just play, right? You, you don't, you've never yeah. been a person to practice scales. You know, and Since the lockdown happened, and I don't know what the fuck to do with myself most of the time, uh, one part of my guitar playing that I always felt was the weakest part was finger picking. Right. So I've actually been doing like finger picking. I mean, I, I guess it's practice. I'll find yeah. a little piece and I'll keep doing it until my hand feels comfortable. Oh, interesting. I've never done that before. Yeah, because you've always told me you're not a guy to sort of, you, you always play, but you don't sort of practice scales. No, and, and this time yeah. I am also, I think, too, because as I've gotten older and anybody knows what I'm talking about, that's that's either been on a, a typewriter, a keyboard, or an instrument long enough, you're, you're going to start getting real stiff in the hands and weird. So it keeps my hands lucid. Mm. Which is really why I started doing it, but the outcome is I'm getting better at it. Awesome, man. Well, I look forward to hearing it. So, Sticky, I won't keep you too much longer, man, because we've been we've been chatting for an hour already. All right. Uh, but you what um, what's uh, after lockdown? What's next? If you can say that, I you know I don't know. Uh, the way it is now, uh, and I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here, but uh, every gig that I did have on the books and every performance are all canceled. They're not even like on hold. They're mm. not postponed. They're just gone. Mm. Uh, so I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at things from a perspective of, okay, when am I or any of us going to be able to go out and play live again? Mm. How are we going to do that? Is everybody going to be broke? Is everybody going to be too scared to get in a room with other people? Uh, are the promoters going to survive this? Are the venues going to survive this? Shit, are we going to survive this financially? Because, you know, uh, uh, in the United States, we get we don't get anything from the government. Uh, we get Donald Trump. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, we don't get anything from the government. And The gift that keeps on giving, man. Oh, yeah, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, if you have a regular, if you're employed in the United States by a company, you uh, out of your paycheck with taxes every week comes what they call unemployment benefit insurance. Hmm. It goes into a, a pool. And so if you get laid off, which a lot of like 30 plus million people now have been laid off, wow. uh, they do collect money every week. Okay. Hmm. It's their money that they put in there, you know, over time as a, what they would call an independent. I don't work for anybody but myself as most musicians. We don't have that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that makes things a bit sticky down the line. Uh, and I know that a lot of us are in the same boat with that. Um, I don't know how much of that is is uh, the same in the UK, but um, it's hard to really look at it. So, I mean, my son, Lee, who has a band called Say Real, um, they're really good. Uh, they're kind of in your age group and they're really good at working the Internet and stuff. So, uh one of the big plans I did have was saying, you know, I've got a lot of records and I've got two albums that haven't even been released. Mm. And I've got some things that me and David had done that have not been released. And wow. uh, so he can help me with that. Plus, I am writing a book. So, you know, there are things to do. What they won't be for the foreseeable future is playing in front of people. Yeah, yeah. That's that's even more scary of a of a of a of a concept than being broke <laughs> yeah absolutely well it's it's the i was saying this last night on my live stream actually because I was, I was doing my little live stream gigs last night 
And I was just saying that that is kind of as a performer, that's your lifeblood, isn't it? That exchange of energy and it that's yeah. what keeps you going, you know? So it's it's kind of I think that's why a lot of my musician friends are kind of it's not even the financial, like you're saying, it's the fact that we can't get out and do what we do best, you know. Right. And then you also when you're locked up like this and you're looking at things and you're looking at what's gonna happen next. As a, as a, as a touring musician, my whole life and an independent, you start to feel: Am I being lazy? Uh, am I not on my game? No, you're in the middle of of something that's never happened to any of. I, not you know, unless you're a hundred years old and you or plus years old and you were around in 1918, you mm-hmm. never anything like this mm-hmm. in our part of the world. So yeah, it's all new. So you know, I have to get out of that. Like wow. I could I could be doing more than this. Well, not really. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it's best just to say stay safe and stay hold up and keep practicing your finger picking, man. <laughs> one night, one night. Nice one, man. There's there's one more thing, if that's all right. I've been asking everyone uh, who's been on the pod so far to do this section called One Night Only, which is basically uh, you've got the opportunity to pick. Uh, a super group that you could be in for one show only, alive or dead, who would be in your band? Wow. I mean, it's not an existing band. It's a band I put together. Exactly. Can they, did they all have to be alive? No, they can be dead. Wow. Oh. I would have me. Buddy Guy. Wow, that's good oh, already. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, Willie Dixon playing bass. Cool. Johnny Johnson playing piano. And Charlie Watts playing drums. <laughs> and um, Bobby Keys and David Sanborn on saxophones. Yes. Yeah. He's up front. Oh, buddy. Yeah. Cool. Willie Dixon, he, you know, he wasn't just a bass player. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, the gig I, I like to see, man. Those guys can handle the front. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got any plans to play with Buddy again? Well, you know, the desire, sure. And plans, mm-hmm. I, like I said, you know, that's the thing with the situation is every time I almost... I'm sure this happens to you. During the course of the day, go, oh, you know what? I had to call Buddy's office to see when he's going to be near New York. Mm, and then you just can't do shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How how do you? I mean, it's funny. The other day, I, I was no about two weeks ago. I actually went on his website just to look around, and for some reason, only they hadn't canceled the gig in October. Right. <laughs> Obviously, not going to happen. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that's the thing. Is sure what, plans to play with Buddy? No desire. Sure, Buddy goes back out on the road like the rest of us do. Yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, as pessimistic as I sound with all of this, I also truly believe that anything can and will happen. Sure. It may not be good. It may not be bad. It might be great. Who knows? Uh it could be that whatever this new world that we're getting launched into could have some benefits that the old world didn't. 
And that's really up to us as individuals to think outside the box and stay away from this apocalyptic bullshit thinking for the future. Now, sure, being realistic, we're behind the eight ball right now, no doubt. But you can't live in that mindset because you will not survive even when this thing subsides. You know, absolutely, man. You've got to keep, and I'm not saying, you know, that positive thinking or any of that. Just don't let yourself fall into that. Well, we're done. You know, that's it. Fuck forever. (laughs) It is always, you know, some, somebody once called me a solutions guy for whatever reason. Maybe what they meant is I just don't give up. Sure. Our asses are whooped right now. We're not working. We're not playing live, but that doesn't mean something else just as cool may not happen later. Yeah. And guess what? If it doesn't happen, fine. But I'm not going to decide that now. Totally. Slicky, that's super inspiring and it's great advice, man. Your wisdom. And I know you don't you don't take compliments very well, but uh, you know, you've really taught me so much in these last couple of years about, you know, knowing your worth and not taking any shit, but you're also extremely kind and generous under that thick exterior. Uh, so thank you. We'll, thanks, we'll have, I'll you, have my secretary send you the bill. <laughs> <laughs> you take care, my brother. I'll see you very soon. You got it. So there we have it. Another episode of Staying Alive over. Massive thanks to Slicky for coming on the pod. What a legend. I'm sure you'll all agree. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Thanks for listening. Next week's guest is another incredible guitar player and one of my favourite episodes I've ever recorded. She is best known for playing guitar for Kate Nash and Get Kate Where Kate Fly and also helped create an incredible charity called Girls Rock London. And it's one of the most inspirational women I know. So make sure you tune in for my conversation next week with Linda Barato. This was a Jesse Smith production. Music by Neil X, Mark Garfield and me. If you'd like to help us out, please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review or consider donating a few quid to help us keep running the pod. If you'd like to send us an email, the address is stayinalivepod at gmail.com. It's a rocky road out there, folks, but we'll make it. Until we get there, let's be nice to each other and help each other stay alive, huh? Moika! Thank you.